0: The American dream has always come at a price, and often that price is steep. It's Tuesday, November 2nd, 1920, Election Day, and Coe's black community is fleeing in panic from the white mobs that have taken that dream and burned it down to ash. On this day, the simple act of voting by members of the disenfranchised black community has sparked an outburst of racial violence that will eventually end with an untold number of murders the burning of homes, and the exiling of a once thriving community for decades to come. But despite this moment, known now as the Akoi Massacre, being the largest incident of voting day violence and the history of the United States, little is actually known about what took place that day. There are some known facts, but conjecture has weaved its way into a narrative that bleeds into realms of reality and fiction, depending on who you ask. These stories, and the history of this moment are now being reflected on by the city of Akoi, which is coming to terms with the atrocity of its past while looking to the future to ensure equality for those in its community. Hey, folks, my name is Troy Herring, and welcome to Full Circle, the new podcasting station for the West Orange Times and Observer, Southwest Orange Observer. While my official title here at The Observer is that of Sports Editor, I'm going to be your humble narrator diving into a moment of local history that has long been overlooked and largely ignored. Throughout this series, you'll hear from a number of folks who have spent years of their life researching this massacre in an attempt to get the full story, something that has been difficult to do as it's been a puzzle that's missing many, many pieces. I should also say that before we dive in, that due to the nature of the story, which deals with racial violence and racism, there's gonna be offensive language used in its historical context. And there's going to be discussion about specific abhorrent crimes committed against a group of people based solely on their race. The reason for this straightforward use of language is because we, that is the Observer staff and myself, believe it's essential to preserving the account of these events as accurately as possible. You know, these are ugly truths of the past. And the best way to begin to heal that wound from such an awful moment is to be honest and acknowledge it head on. Without whitewashing or covering up any details. With that said, welcome to episode one of our podcast, A Century Removed: Truth and Reconciliation of the 1920 Akoi Massacre. For this first episode, we're actually going to take a look at the city and the state before the events of Election Day 1920. Because, as with all things, the massacre wasn't something that just happened. To best understand the massacre, it's best to step back and examine the country's treatment of black communities, especially in the South. In 1920, the country was only 55 years removed from the end of the Civil War, and the so-called Reconstruction Amendments were slowly put into place towards the end of the war and after. Those three crucial amendments include the 13th Amendment, one of the most well-known amendments in the Constitution, which abolished slavery, the 14th Amendment, which granted citizenship to all persons born or naturalized in the United States, including former slaves, and guaranteed all citizens, quote, equal protection of the laws, unquote. And then finally, the 15th Amendment, which states, quote, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Although these rights were placed in the U.S. Constitution, there was a disconnect between written law and how it was carried out by local government and state government and federal government.
1: But the end of the Civil War is really important because while a lot of people were taught in their their classes that emancipation meant freedom, that's not really the case.
0: That's Pamela Swartz, chief curator at the Orange County Regional Election, History Center. By
1: talking about things like black codes and talking about things like Jim Crow laws, because what it meant was that freedom wasn't really free. There were all of these other parameters put into place to oppress uh, the black community. So the black community is walking out of enslavement with little, they had no money, sometimes maybe not clothes, maybe not being literate even. Um, and so starting life anew. This is all sort of setting the stage to coming into um, early, early Ocoee.
0: For the last few years, Schwartz and the Orange County Regional History Center has been doing a deep dive into the massacre, which ultimately produced its current special exhibit, Yesterday This Was Home, The Ecoe Massacre of 1920. That's up and running through February 14th of 2021. In the exhibit, the museum explores the story of the massacre while also taking a look back at the years leading up to that moment and the years of violence and racism that followed it. Since as early as 1513, African Americans had been brought and enslaved in Florida, but it was just after the Civil War when things in Akkoi began to change. White veterans began to move into the Akkoi area, while a black community was slowly building between 1880 and 1885. That's when key figures from the night of the massacre, including Mose Norman, Valentine Hightower, and July Perry, moved in from South Carolina to make a better life for themselves. Now to step back for a quick minute, it should be known that a few decades before these important figures arrived, around 1850, a white man by the name of James D. Stark, the founder of COE moved to the Ocoee area with 23 enslaved black people and established citrus groves between what is now known as Stark Lake and Apopka. This is a key note because many of the black men and women who lived in the area worked these very groves. And it was during these early days when Ocoee saw its population rise to about 1100, although Ocoee back then referred to the general area and not the incorporated limits of the city that we know today. And the black community accounted for about 45% of the population from what we know, according to Lester Dabbs, a former commissioner and mayor of Ocoee, who wrote his master's thesis on the Ocoee massacre called A Report of the Circumstances and Events of the Race Riot on November 2nd, 1920, in Ocoee, Florida. The community itself was also divided into two sections, according to Dabbs. The first is known as the Northern Quarters, which was bound by Silver Star Road to the south, Blueford Avenue at the railroad tracks on the east, and extending north toward Apopka and west toward Winter Garden. The second, known as the Southern Quarters, was the area bound by White Road on the north and extending in the other Cardinal direction from that point. And it's during this time, between 1888 and 1920, when members of the black community are really working hard, saving money, in buying property in what was a time of great prosperity and growth despite the issues of Jim Crow laws that were in place and the racism that was generally around them. And it also leads us to two of the most important parts about this moment in time, the end of World War I and the women's suffrage movement. So during the 19-teens, the women's suffrage movement had been in full swing for years and the end of world war one in 1918 ignited a sense of desire in the black community to become active citizens in the country
1: you've got the end of world war one which was really important um you had a lot of uh, young black men go to war and the idea being that if we go we serve our country we've put our you know we put our stake in and served this place like we should also have our voices heard and so coming home sort of steeled to this idea that we have our rights and we should be treated equally uh, and we should have our vote.
0: Part of this true realization of self-worth also came from how black men were being treated overseas while they were serving. An example of this is a newspaper clipping titled Colored Soldier Writes from France, which reads, Sergeant Lafayette Hammeter, colored, formerly of a COE, writes his wife that he's well and getting on OK. He writes that there are very few colored men over there and no colored women to speak of. He says it's a beautiful country and that the people are treating them fine. It was during this time when there was a big push for a statewide voter registration drive in Florida, a push that was led by prominent and important members of the black community, which included Dr. W.S. Stevens. Stevens was the leader of the Florida Knights of Pythias, international fraternal order which sought to quote promote friendship among men and to relieve suffering unquote and represented the florida voter registration movement in the panhandle where he helped members of the black community register to vote
2: if you asked a black person to register to vote in 1919 1920 anywhere in the state
0: that's paul ortiz he was part of a virtual lecture on the massacre back in september during an episode of the Florida Humanities Florida Talks at Home program. He's a historian and a professor of history at the University of Florida whose book, Emancipation Betrayed, was a discussion on racial violence and politics at the the time.
2: If you ask an African American in Florida to register to vote in 1920, you're asking them to risk their lives. So how do you make that ask? You know, I know a lot of us... Um, have done voter registration more recently. You know, you pick up a clipboard, you put the voter registration blank, you know, form, you go to the park, you know, county fair, and you say, hey, would you like to register to vote and do your civic duty? But now think, go back in time 100 years and think about what it meant to ask an African American to register to vote. And the reason that black Floridians were able to organize a statewide voter registration movement the reason that people like Julius Perry and Moses Norman in Ocoee were able to get so many other black people registered to vote is this issue of trust, this issue of mutual aid, reciprocity, of community. And Dr. W.S. Stevens in the panhandle in the middle of Gadsden County perfectly illustrates this idea of mutual aid and trust. He's a member of the Florida Knights of Pythias. And if you read Emancipation Betrayed, you know that on the eve of the 1920 election, approximately one out of every six black men in Florida were members of the Knights of Pythias. It wasn't just a fraternal organization, it was your insurance policy. You paid dues every month. Um, If you died prematurely, your widow was paid what was called a death benefit. If If you worked in the countryside, if you were a sharecropper or you owned a small piece of land, and your mule went down or took sick if you were a fellow pythian member you were required to go and help your brother or your sister the sister organization was called the courts of calantha and being that dr w stevens is a leader of the knights of pythias lodge in gadsden county but also a member of the statewide organization the statewide organization the knights of pythias issued a special pledge at their state convention the first state convention they have after the end of World War I. And that pledge says to all black men, you will will pay your poll tax and you will register to vote. If you don't, you will be expelled from the fraternal organization. Uh, And we have a fund, the Knights of Pythias had raised a fund a subscription to help pay back poll taxes for uh, working class or poor members. You think about what LeBron James and other athletes are doing now to pay, to help pay people's, you know, back fees uh, in Florida. Uh, the Knights of Pythias were doing that in 1920 uh, and Dr. Stevens in Gadsden County and Quincy uh, is really a leader of the effort up there.
0: Another vital group of the moment was the NAACP when James Weldon Johnson saw the great migration as an opening of opportunities for black Southerners. So, in 1916, he returned to Florida as field secretary of the NAACP and helped build the organization's base in the state to help fuel voter registration. But of all the groups pushing for voting rights, it was the activism of black women, one of the most vital and often forgotten demographics in America's history that truly spearheaded the voting rights movement. Women such as Florida Federation of Women's Clubs leader, Eartha M.M. White, an educator, civil rights activist, stateswoman Mary McLeod Bethune, play tremendous roles in inspiring the black communities to seize the moment and utilize their right to vote.
2: When people like Mrs. Bethune talked about equality, human rights and dignity, equal citizenship, she meant it. There was no compromise with Mrs. Bethune and she is one of the the major leaders of the 1919-1920 voter registration movement. She famously says on the the eve of registration to black men, eat your bread without butter, but pay your poll tax. Mrs. Bethune saw World War I as the main chance for African-Americans to regain the rights of citizenship. And I'll explain what she meant in a few moments, but here she's trying to emphasize the fact that black people have fought in every war in this nation's history should already have had equal citizenship by 1919. But guess what? Um, played black people play a major role in mobilizing for World War One. If you get anything from my presentation tonight, it's the theme of women's, of black women's leadership. It's it's paramount. It's pivotal, because even before black women in Florida gain the right to vote with Women's Suffrage Amendment, with the 19th Amendment, right? Um, Even before that happens, black women like Eartha M.M. White are leading voter registration workshops right at the end of World War I. As their young men are coming home, they are uh, people like Eartha White, Mrs. Bethune, Lisa Collier, and Orlando and others are signing up and making sure that men are paying their poll taxes and registering to vote.
0: In Orange County, Attorney W.R. O'Neill and Judge John Cheney were trying to actively enfranchise members of the black community. In O'Neill's case, the Republican was running for United States Senator in 1920 and was looking for a boost in voting from those he was helping. In Dabb's thesis, he notes that O'Neill and Cheney actually held secret meetings at a black church in the northern quarters to prepare black men to vote. Now, I should note that during this time, the Democratic Party and Republican Party's platforms were switched from what we know of them today. During those days, Republicans favored a larger, more centralized government, while Democrats were for small government, in which states' rights were pivotal. But word of these attempts to enfranchise the Black community spread and caught the attention of a local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan, which, according to Dabbs, had its headquarters in Winter Garden, but citizens in Ocoee and Orlando also held associate memberships. In a letter dated September 20th, 1920, and sent directly to O'Neill, the white supremacist group made clear their intent that what he and Cheney were doing to enfranchise the black community would not go without consequence. The letter reads, Sir, while stopping in your beautiful little city this week, I was informed that you were in the habit of going out among the Negroes of Orlando and delivering lectures, explaining to them just how to become citizens and how to assert their rights. If you're familiar with the history of the days of Reconstruction, which followed in the wake of the Civil War, you'll recall that the Scalawags of the North and the Republicans of the South proceeded very much the same as you are proceeding instill into the Negro the idea of social equality. You'll also remember that these things forced the loyal citizens of the South to organize clans of determined men who pledged themselves to maintain white supremacy and to safeguard our women and children. And now if you are a scholar, you know that history repeats itself, and that he who resorts to your kind of a game is handling edge tools. We shall always enjoy white supremacy in this country, and he who interferes, must face the consequences. Signed, Grand Master Florida Ku Klux. At the bottom of the note, Judge John Cheney is copied, as well as the local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan, in which this individual tells them to watch these two.
1: And so this is a really important item. We do have the original in our collection. We've chosen to use a facsimile here, um, but it's really important because it's, it's evidence that the Ku Klux Klan was actively trying to suppress black voters.
0: Racial hostilities grew as Election Day approached, and part of the reason this hatred continued to grow was because many whites began to see the black community prospering a little bit too much for their liking. In town at the time, there were only three small grocery stores, and according to Dabbs, quote, "...the Negroes would congregate in such numbers that this virtually precluded the whites from entering these establishments, but much of the Negro trade in these stores was based on credit." and the owners were reluctant to clear the Negroes out for fear, lest they get not paid, unquote. To add to this, Dabbs notes that there were two outstanding Negro men in the area who controlled the black labor market, those two men being Mose Norman and July Perry, who established themselves as intermediaries between white employers and the black labor force. Any white person who wanted black labor Dabb said, had to go through Norman and Perry, who in return got, quote, unquote, kickbacks. Those black laborers accepted the practice without complaint, but many whites began to, quote, get disturbed when the power and influence of Norman and Perry grew to dangerous proportions, unquote. As it turned out, these two men were also being utilized by Cheney and O'Neill to work the secret voting and registration schools. And as things began to unravel, the final sign of force from white supremacists came just two days before black men made their way to the polls. The Klan marched through Orlando and other areas of Florida in an act to intimidate black voters. According to the November 1st edition of the Orlando Evening Star, more than 500 Klansmen, a number that's debated, dressed in flowing white robes and marched single file through the streets of Orlando that previous Saturday night in the subhead of the article it reads where they came from where they went who they were is yet a mystery have little to say only to remind that the old south still lives
1: about two or three days before the massacre and before election day you have the ku klux klan march through orlando they did this in daytona jacksonville around florida the sentiment is essentially that they are trying to actively scare black voters from coming out to vote But again, these are evidence that the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacists were actively trying to suppress black voters at the time.
0: As you can see, the warning signs from white supremacists and white supremacist groups regarding their thoughts on the black community voting were already there. And the message was blatantly obvious. They, the Klan and others, wanted black people to know their place and that that place was in the fields and not at the ballot box. That anger, that need to suppress the black vote and hold firmly onto the reins of power was boiling over, but no one would have guessed the proverbial genocide that was yet to come. next week's episode of A Century Removed Truth and Reconciliation of the 1920 Okoye Massacre will take a look at the events that unfolded on that violent election day, as well as the day after, and try to piece together a story that's as much mystery as fact. And I'd also like to take a minute to thank Pam Schwartz and the Orlando Regional History Center, the late Lester Dabbs, and Paul Ortiz, for their wealth of knowledge on the topic and for sharing that with me. Until next time, I'm Troy Herring, and this is Full Circle.